Okay, I'm ready. You guys ready? Cool. Let's rock and roll. Hey, I'm Andrew. This is the Nerve Podcast, and thanks for joining me on this episode. In this week's episode, I speak to Tim from Cape Sidecar Adventures. Tim tells us about how he started the business, what they've been up to, and what their future plans are. So welcome to this week's episode, the fourth guest episode. Um, I met Tim at their shop in Woodstock, or maybe it's Salt River, at... um, Cape Sidecar Adventures. Uh, it was really nice to sit down and chat with Tim. We had a cup of coffee. We shared some stories. But I started the conversation out by asking Tim where he had been and how he started the business. Enjoy. Uh, I did a bit of background check on your on your website to you know and see I see you travelled the world for a while mm-hmm. before setting down back in Cape Town. I mean, what uh, what were you up to overseas, and then how did you come around back to Cape Town, and what did you All right. decide to do? Um, yeah, I sort of did quite a bit of traveling. <clears throat> uh, I'm Joburg born and bred, uh, graduated from Vits. I'm a chartered accountant, believe it or mm. not, for my sins. <laughs> One of the worst I know. But uh, then started traveling, lived in the UK, uh, traveled across Europe, ended up in the Far East, um, and uh, that was over a 20-year period. And um, during my um, travels, I happened to have, well, it was travels, and then I settled in Taiwan, and then eventually in Shanghai, where I ran a couple of pubs and restaurants and stuff. Co-owned them with, with Chinese and Taiwanese partners. Um, but while I was in Shanghai, in the sort of 2000, 2001, had a an Irish pub or a couple of pubs, the O'Malley's was one of them. Um, one of my punters who used to frequent O'Malley's had one of these bikes. So I got to know about them and I used to ride his bike and um, one weekend, I'm telling you this sort of romantic story, okay? The one weekend he decided to go off to do a visa renewal run down to Hong Kong or whatever. Never came back. Uh, couldn't get a visa, persona non gratis. So all of a sudden I was bequeathed one of these bikes and um, I used to park it at the pub, and, and I realized it was quite popular because all the punters wanted to get a, have a ride. And one of the wonderful ways of clearing my pub out at 2 o'clock in the morning was saying, guys, first guys on the bike, we'll go to the next pub. I'll lock up, and if you're on the bike, you can come with me. And, of course, I would end up having, like, 20 people sting grabbing, holding onto this one side car, and we'd all go down to the next bar in Shanghai, you know. So that was where the sort of, um, well, the ownership and, and the understanding of this whole sidecar uh, idea. And when I moved back to South Africa in 2004, 2005, um, I thought, hang on, this is an idea. So I shipped my bike out plus a couple of others and I started doing a little marketing exercise um, and realized there was, some, there was some interest in me running a, at that time I was going to do self-drive, similar to what uh, Adish Retzer was doing. Yeah. <clears throat> but it sort of evolved into a chauffeured 
type of tour company. Self-drive, the bikes were pretty old and they were getting banged around and uh, they were coming back pretty wet and uh, hammered. So we decided to stop self-drive after a couple of years and concentrate on tourist chauffeur-driven uh, yeah. big groups. Um, and that's where we've evolved to now. So, I mean, we've, you know, the bikes are doing two, 3,000 punters a year, uh, a lot of mileage, uh, but a lot of fun, and we're becoming quite credible in the tourism area in Cape Town, Western Cape. The background of the bikes, which is what everybody wants to know, is yeah. that they uh, there's lots of shaggy dog, urban legend, romanticized stories of where these bikes actually came from. But uh, essentially, uh, these bikes are based on the old BMW R71, yes. uh, which the Germans started making in around the mid-1930s. Um, just to go even further back, what happened after the First World War, and the, the Germany got a bit of a fat smack and were told to stop any military, and they were actually uh, they were told to shut down the factories and no more military stuff. And BMW actually relocated one or two of their factories out to Eastern Europe, into Eastern Germany, and they started developing this R71, ostensibly making farm implements and that sort of thing. And that's sort of how the whole Second World War started, because these guys were making all this equipment. So basically, that's where the, that was the birthplace and the birth time of these 1935 BMW sidecars. Mm. Um, and 1935, and then they made them. And of course, they were uh, a lot of the successes that the Germans had initially in the European sort of uh, uh, area during the war was because of these bikes that were so versatile. Dogs, oi, out. Having a very important podcast going on here. No, you know, I didn't say come, I said out. So, um, anyway, um, what happened was. They were quite successful, and during, towards the end of the Second World War, something must have happened. The Russians got a hold of one of the factories out in the Eastern Europe, the, the Balkans area, Ural area, I think it was, not Balkans, Ural, and some sort of deal was struck up, either by, it was forced or it was voluntary, whatever it is, and they started making the Russian Ural, which is the sister bike to what yes. we have here. Yeah. And they started churning out these Russian Euros for the Russian army. And around about the mid-1950s, the Russians and the Chinese got together, because at that time it was the Cold War and the communists all hung around together and, 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 and they exchanged stuff. And I think there was some exchange that took place between the, the, the Russians um, and the Chinese. And not much is known because there was, it, it was very limited information and you know, that whole, that, that 1950s, 1960s era where, you know, there was a communist under every stone type of thing. So there was a limited amount of information. But basically what happened is, around about the mid-50s, a factory was started in a city called Nanjiang in China, which is about, I don't know, an hour's flight from Shanghai, west of Shanghai. And they started churning out. At that time, the factory was already making these little fighter jet planes that the military were, or the Air Force were using, and then decided to have a little sideline making these bikes as well. So it's quite incredible. You go there now to Nanjiang. Yeah. Huge uh, factories, which have now been mothballed, uh, but making these bikes. And they reckon they, between the 50s, mid-50s and the mid-70s, they made about 300,000 of these bikes. But subsequent uh, to the 70s, they decided they became obsolete. They weren't, uh, uh, their the, the, the use and their... Uh, 
abilities were, were limited and then they've now, they do have a lot of sidecars in the Chinese military army, in the Red Army, but uh, they are, they've cobbled together Japanese bikes and Honda and Suzuki and all these guys and have a modern make. So what happened then was they pulled the plug on all these bikes and um, when I was knocking about Shanghai and finding out a bit more about the bikes in the early 2000s, uh, I realized there were lots of these little military little warehouses and, and bike graveyards all over the place, especially up in Beijing. Um, and there was quite a strong cult following, mostly amongst the expatriates, the Westerners, who were, uh, realized these guys, these bikes were something unusual and they had some value. And um, there were guys that were setting themselves up to buy in all this old stock and scrap stock and rebuild these bikes and chrome them and make them all pretty. Uh, and they were able to do this because there were a couple of uh, sideline businesses that kept on going even after the military stopped making them. Uh, that were they had outsourced a lot of the makes or a lot of the industry to these OEM sort of uh, factories that were supplying bits and pieces to other smaller factories to supply NGOs, municipalities, the police to a lesser degree of similar bikes, uh, but uh, not as versus, uh, not as robust and not as military looking as the original bikes that we have. So because of those little factories that kept on going, they were able to put together these scrap bikes and then get new pistons and working parts and rings and seals and pipes and rubbers and stuff like that, which normally would have been very, very difficult to source. So these guys, were, still to this day, you can go and buy pistons and all sorts of things for these bikes. So it sort of helps us uh, keep these bikes going. So mainly we've got all the sort of structural backup for building more bikes here. But I've got to go off to China once or twice a year to go and source the little things, you know, the, the, the electricals, the wiring, the stuff that, the consumables that you have to keep, you know, put into the bikes to keep them going. So fast forward to now, we have uh, we've over the years increased the fleet to, I think we're just building our 33rd bike now. So we've had just over 30 bikes. Wow. Um, we, this Maggie May you see here in the coffee shop is just a, it was a, just a, um, uh, we indulged ourselves. And uh, this is our Salt Flats racer. This is our Bonneville. Okay. This is yeah. our Bonneville, Bonneville number. <laughs> we're going to take her up to Oxtian Pan and yes. do a world record on her one okay, day. Okay, cool. <laughs> But um, so generally, um, what you have in China now is um, a bunch of guys that are sort of making, I hate the word replica, but they're cobbling together bikes like this under various licenses, but it's all a bit of a, it's all a bit murky and messy. Yeah. Um, I, when I go back and source bits and pieces, I know and I always make my way to genuine old military stuff because that's when it was all cobbled together in the 50s and 60s good solid you know in the, the days in China where all the folk had to bring their pots and pans to be melted down for the for the effort you know for the war effort for whatever it is so they made them pretty bulletproof back in those days and now what you have is these guys who copied and you'll find that these bikes are available out there you can ship one in you know pay 
what is it? I think that now a new one will be 30, 40, about 50, 60,000 rand, X okay. factory. Hmm. But it's a can of worms when you get it. It sort of looks very nice and it's got all this sort of chrome and bells and whistles, but it, it really is a, um, it, it's, um, well, can of worms. Uh, so what, and they all have been over the years, but they've, we've, with our fleet, we've managed to isolate all these areas. We've rebuilt, literally bikes that come in or that have been rebuilt for us overseas, we've literally stripped down and rebuilt ourselves, you know, just oh, really? to make them reliable. Yeah. Yeah. So you like always on the look for other bikes that are for sale that yeah. you can so use? I'm, in South Africa, I, I, actually one of the things I did over the years, when, when, uh, back in the late 90s, I think, uh, not late 90s, um, about two, 2009, was I was bringing in container loads and selling them. Uh, so um, because I thought, well, this is the way to go. But again, because of the unreliability generally of these bikes, mm. I was getting hammered with warranty claims. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so I sold about 50 or 60 of the bikes over a period of four or five years. But mm. uh, it was quite painful because most of them I had huge... You know, engine seizing, gearboxes packing, up, final drives, oh, oh, no. paint peeling off. Oh. So it was, I mean, literally made very little money, but I stopped and I sort of held my breath for 12 months because I would give 12 month um, warranty. warranty. So yeah. I had sort of held my breath 12 months after I sold the last ones. I, oh, please, no more. Um, so there are bikes out there in South Africa and I'm sort of known as the buyer of last resort. So if somebody has a wanted to offload the bike in a hurry and I would I can't offer him market related costs mm. uh, rates um, right, so. because you could a good bike a really nice clean one papers low mileage well maintained will probably sell for 60, 70, 80,000 okay you know I'll offer the guy pretty much what it would cost me to bring a bike in um, and uh, you know so every now and then somebody says oh god no I've or people that don't have papers so I, I, I'm able to sort of I've got the wherewithal to be able to strip and rebuild, go for police clearances, get them cleared, get them, because I've got time in my hands to get all that. You know, it's a very painful process getting all that, all the paperwork together on rebuilt yeah, I know. bikes and, and um, uh, vehicles. So, so that's what we are right now. Um, last where, and where, sorry, where did the, like the Urals, I mean, did you see the guys riding overseas? I mean... I mean, if you go check on the internet, Look, there are guys, I yeah. mean, are they selling urals? I yeah. Mean, and where, I mean, how does that fit in with you? I mean, what's is happened is somebody, uh, I think it was an Australian, Austrian company or a German company, back in the 2000 and something, early 2000s, somebody went off to the Russians or, or whoever held that license and said, we want to buy it. And they did a deal. They bought the license, they took all the tooling, all the manufacturing, they moved everything across to Austria. I think it's Austria. And what they did was they said, you know, this is, this is a good thing here. We're going re, to reinvent this whole Ural thing. We'll keep the, the basic idea, but we're going to make it better quality, more reliability. We're going to tart it up. We're going to modernize it. And from that time, you could then go and buy a Ural. And you can buy one now. You can go to the internet. Ural, the Ural agents for South Africa are a buddy of mine called Reno. He runs a company called Sidecar Africa. Okay. And Sidecar Africa are the exclusive agents for Ural bikes in Southern Africa, I think it is. 
But because they've modernized and it's an ex-Europe thing, and, and when you want parts, you've got to source them from this factory in Europe. Very expensive. Oh, right. Uh, relatively expensive. Oh, right. So, for instance, their entry-level Ural, which is a beautiful bike, same story, you know, it's all, it's an, not a side valve like this one, they're overhead valves. They're about a 32 horsepower um, engine. Modern, you know, uh, they now have disc brakes and all the fancy um, gadgetry that goes with a modern bike. They're going, I think their entry level South African Rand value, buying one off the floor from Rayner would be about 150,000 Rand. Okay. So, Difficult to, to market because, you know, unless you are a real, real, you know, sort of, you're, you're into the whole sidecar thing, 150k, you can get yourself a really cool car, you know. Um, so it's been a limited success for you all. There's, there's, um, there's a, uh, quite a well, um, well-supported club, a sidecar club based in Gauteng. They go on their rides all over the place. I'm sort of the poor relation. My CJ750s, <laughs> what's happened? Nobody's sort of salvaged it and gone off and modernized it and made it pretty. Matter of fact, I lie. Last year, first time ever, 2017, 18, 17, they've relaunched the CJ750. Okay. Beautiful. They've got an engine that I think has been developed in China, and it's a good-looking good-looking bike, and I think they're hoping to do similar things to what the, the Ural folk do. Mm. Um, Ural are quite big. They've launched globally. They've got agents all over the world. Uh, I mean, generally, I think the sidecar market is uh, uh, minute compared to the Harleys or Indians or whatever special sort of brand. Um, but the CJs, um, and if you remind me, I'll send you a photo of the latest modern CJ. It looks absolutely okay. beautiful. Whether it gets traction and becomes popular, don't know. I think one of the reasons, I was chatting with my, some of my staff this morning, one of the reasons why uh, our, our business does have a following and we seem to be growing and people love to be on the bikes is the fact that they're old and they are old bangers and things fall off every now and then and um, makes noise and it's a bit of an adventure being on one, you know? Yeah. So as opposed to a modern bike. We did many, many years ago, somebody, I managed to get myself an old R50 or a modern-ish bike, you know, from the 70s, I suppose, 80s. We cobbled together one of these sidecars onto the bike, took it out with one of my outings. And there was very little enthusiasm yeah. from the guests. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, we want to be on one of these old... Old ones, you know. And funnily enough, I'd send 30 bikes out, all the same bikes, but different colors and different different levels of scruffiness. And everybody would head to the scruffiest-looking bike, you know. Yeah. We've got one here called Kim. Kim and Katie, they're military uh, desert brown colors, you know. Oh, they're right. the same bikes. They're just dirtier than the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> they've, been, they've been banged up a little more than the rest, but people genuinely wanted to be on the oldest one in the fleet type of thing. You know? We want to yeah. be there. But... Um, yeah, because I was going to ask you, you know, it's like, I mean, from a business point of view, tempted to swap over to more reliable bikes, you know, different brand, whatever. But I mean, you've asked, because I, I would have imagined that it would, that's part of your identity yeah. is these old bikes. Because I mean, I've, uh, funny enough, I, I saw one yesterday and I saw one today. Now, I don't know if they're your bikes, because you say you don't do self-drive, you only do chauffeur. Um, uh, we do do self-drive, but you'd okay. probably, I mean, we did, I mean, we bikes out every day, but they'd probably be one of our chauffeur yeah. bikes. 
Yeah. Um, if, if there was one person on it, well, probably we do have a perk that the drivers have here that they can take a bike out at any time okay. if they want, just for a run yeah. around or take the family out. So, oh, um, nice. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah, it is something to, you know, catches your eye when you see it on the road. The old one. Yeah, cruising around, oh. you know, the coast. We've got, um, yeah, the modern bikes, uh, well, funnily enough, I mean, when we started the business, um, it was a nightmare because... The, the reliability was, oh, it was the biggest headache. And I mean, I, I would have bookings for five bikes, five bikes would go out to the Winelands with backup, with four backup bikes. I remember we had, we had enough vehicles and trailers to take four back, because we knew <laughs> they would all break down at some stage, you know. Yeah. Uh, and if, it's, you know, if, if the fifth bike broke down, all that's it, we just have to leave it somewhere and bring the packs. Yeah. So we had a, we had lots of fun and games and adventures in the beginning. You know, I'm surprised we lasted. But I mean, and I mean, what and what were the your your customers, your clients that were with you on those on those journeys? I mean, did I think, they understand? Was that yeah. part of the experience for them? Is it a story that they could go home think, and tell? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, we we marketed ourselves as you know, airs and grace is what you see is what you get type of thing. You know, yeah. these are old bikes, guys. This is an adventure. You know, the tools in the back, and, and they are genuinely 50, 60 years old, and let's go for it. And I think what helped us get through was the fact that our drivers managed, when, when we did have a breakdown or, or, or something went wrong, we were able to manage our way through it. And I mean, if it was completely stuck, and we just, we, in those days before the Uber, I used to, I mean, I had a couple of 4x4 four four vehicles would go and pick the packs refund them, that sort of thing, you know. Mm. So, I mean, we, would, we went over the top to try and, if something didn't go right, we would make sure it was compensation or, or give them freebies for another ride or whatever it is. So it sort of gained a bit of traction and, and our credibility sort of grew from there, you know. But um, look, what's happened over the years is we've managed to isolate those, those issues that we had right from the very beginning. Yeah. So um, what's happening is, uh, what's happened, uh, let's say for instance, electrics were a big issue you know simple electrics and if you look at the original bike and you open it up there here we go again your can of worms wires going every which way colors the rainbow wires sticking out don't know where they belong type of thing so what we did we realized slowly one by one we brought those bikes into the workshop we removed the, the entire wiring harness and rewired these bikes yeah. you know, yeah. according to our specs so that was like but i mean remember that it would take us a year or two to do to, to all that with a fleet of, at that stage, 20-odd bikes. So the wiring was one. The other is, for instance, the fuel. There were blockages in the fuel. And we realized that there was, because these are old bikes and they've been sitting for years and years and years, there was rust and gunk and stuff inside yeah. the tank. We realized that. So we cleaned. We put these little inline filters in, which we then, you know, religiously cleaned out and, uh, and, and swapped around every week or month. And that then... Uh, alleviated that whole fuel blockage and, and, and fuel starvation problem. And then we had, for instance, things like um, uh, suspensions were starting to pack up. And we realized the suspensions, uh, they were grease nipples that weren't actually real grease nipples. They were just there for show. So the guys were pumping grease in, but it wasn't getting to the pot. So we then took all the bikes in, recalled all the bikes, yeah. put proper little grease nipples in. So that, that sort of removed that problem. But uh, we had one now recently. What was it? Um, little things. Um, uh, one of the rear 
uh, one of the rear suspension rods, um, if uh, one, after they wear, now remember these bikes have done, they've all done well over 100,000 Ks. Certain things start wearing, but slowly, slowly, there's some rear rods that, that every now and then if you go over a pothole, it, it jumps out of its placement and it sort of, uh, it, it, it's sort of potentially dangerous because then what happens is that, that uh, you come to a grinding hole for starters. But it actually, uh, it, it, unless you've caught it, uh, well, we haven't, well, after 20 or 15 years, we haven't had a disaster yet. But that was an area that we worried about. So these shafts, so what we did was we realized that the, the, down the middle of the shaft was hollow. So we've actually now pinned the shaft into the, into the holders with the, with the little holding bolt type of thing. And then we realized that, so this worked perfect. So all the bikes are done. Then we realized that something else was going wrong here. The final drives were packing up. Because what was happening was that there was, there was too much sort of lateral movement. On the, fi the final drive is just one big sort of gear at the back there. Okay? It's got to run true. Mm. to your to your drive shaft and if it's just a little off kilter then it starts wearing in the wrong places and the seals start going and we were battling to figure out what was going on we looked at the wheel are the wheels buckled so it runs like this then we realized these shafts that we had pinned in here had also worn over the years and uh, just an ever so slight wearing so your final drive would, would yeah, just, there, just a yeah. little bit of a play you know and of course over you know 5,000 k's all of a sudden, you come in and there's oil pissing out all over the place. The seals have gone. Yeah. And, of course, what happens if you don't pick that up quickly and don't sort those seals out, it'll run dry. And within the next 100 k's, you're going to have your, your rack and pinion just doing an explosion on you, you know, and just breaking up into little pieces. So what we've done is we've realized now we've got to do something. Now, there's a place in town that can actually have said to us, no, send all the shafts and we'll re-chrome them. It's hard chrome. So... They'll be bulletproof. So we'll put them in the right specs, take away all the play, and this, these proper re-chroming, re-chromed shafts will last another lifetime. You know? So we think, oh, brilliant. Because every time one of these final drives packs up, I'm in for three, 4,000 Rand, because you know, we've got to get them out, completely strip, rebuild. And sometimes we actually have to manufacture parts because we can't find them in China anymore. So manufacturing parts is an issue. Fortunately, I've got to an outsource a lot of my heavy duty work to a German engineer down the road and he's involved in Urals and CJs and BMWs and old BMW has got this old big lathe that can run these new parts you know for us so it's sort of um, it's an evolution and it's a labor of love and, um, and but on top of that you know we'll have this like now 28th we all the bikes out <laughs> so we're running around okay and yeah. By the time everybody leaves this afternoon, because we've got a holiday now, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, all the bikes will be there, refueled, ready, check <laughs> everything. I guarantee you, I'm going to open up here at 6.30 on yeah. the 28th, the morning of the 28th, and three of them won't start. Just <laughs> who knows why. <laughs> you know, somebody came through the night, you know, a little gremlin came down and said, right, that's why, of course, I, I people telling me I'm a sexist. All the bikes are named after ladies, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, you know, because you've got to nurture them and love them. And if you don't treat them well, they're going to come along and have okay. bite you in the bum and have a bad day, you know. <laughs> so you have know. all the bikes got named. Yeah. Oh, well done. Well done. So we sort of, um, well, my drivers think they're all my failed loves and, okay. and exes, but <laughs> uh, sadly not. <laughs> but, you know, we thought because 
they all have different characters and, and um, it's quite amazing. There's certain drivers that say, please, I, I had just, please give me Blossom. I, I oh, need really? to ride Blossom. Uh, you yeah. know, you gave me Jackie the other day. Oh, she's okay. And I was on Lolita, which is a, she's, don't like Lolita, give me Blossom. Oh, that's, so that's, what I did. That's interesting. Yeah. That <laughs> so what I did was instead of, so giving them a little bit of personality. So I, my very first, um, you can now that's an overhead valve engine. You can hear that difference, sort of like boom, 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 yeah. a little more powerful. So what I did was I said, right, I've got at that stage I had twenty-five odd bikes. So I did the whole alphabet. So it was Amanda, Blossom, Candy, Danny, Emily, Fanny, Gypsy, Honey, Isabel, Jackie, Katie, Lolita, Mandy, Nancy. What was O again? Olive. No, no, I didn't have Olive. Olive. I think we had, I think we had Opal, I think, but then okay. we bailed OP, right through to, yeah. to Zandy. And then, of course, as I got you more bikes, I went, oh, <laughs> then it was the grandchildren, you know, there was yeah. like Haley and Peyton, and, and then like my daughters, and there was Danny and Kim, and, and then I'd find a cousin who'd say, oh, why you didn't name a bike after me? All right, okay. there's Doris or whatever it is, you know, so... Um, <laughs> But um, I could, it just allows a little more of a, uh, you know, we don't want to get too serious about this. Yeah. So um, I, I try and encourage with all my staff and the drivers to, you've got to have a sense of humor, you know, you've, and you've got to and make two, two or three things when I have these briefings when the drives go out. First of all, safety, that's it. There's absolutely, is not negotiable. And, um, you know, we've had incidences where we've literally, I've, it's, become aware of, of, of something that's happened or an unsafe practice or a driver's done a bit of road rage or whatever and he's getting chopped out, you know. So uh, safety first. Uh, then secondly, understand that not only are you a biker and you know your way around a bike, but you're a sort of ambassador. You know, you've got somebody on the bike that's um, paying some serious dosh to come on a ride with you. And, and you uh, it's a privilege for you to take out these guys around. It's beautiful Cape of ours. These guys are paying a lot of money and it's probably their first time ever in Cape Town. So wow them and make them really, really, really have some good memories, you know, not only of where they've been or but how they've done it and be the ambassador, you know, do the passion thing, you know, passionate thing. Um, and it's worked. And also, you know, I said, don't get too serious. You know, if you break down, manage it, you know, say to the guys, here we go, you know, the old lady's broken down. Let's head, put you into the pub for a beer while we either fix it or call for backup or whatever it is. And just, you know, uh, I just had somebody, I had, a, I had a breakdown a couple of weeks ago. And it was one of those perfect storm type breakdowns. It happened in, in Cape Point Nature Reserve. And it was a late pickup, so it was a late finish ride. So <clears throat> these guys were coming out of Cape Point at sort of 5 o'clock in the afternoon, which was very late for us. Usually we're in and out of Cape Point by lunchtime. Probably. Mm. But there was a late pickup. They only started the ride at 10 or 11 o'clock. And, of course, the guy had a breakdown. It was an electrical breakdown. So he couldn't figure out. It was sort of running for a while, and then it was cutting out. You know, electrical breakdowns are the worst. And he didn't have reception. Cell phone reception is, is dodgy right around that peninsula, you know. Yeah. So by the time he managed to get to me, and I'm that first point of response, 
it was late, it was six o'clock. It was six o'clock and he was in Scarborough, managed just to get, and of course he had sort of stop started all the way through. So now the punters were upset and it was late and, uh, and, and the driver was a little flustered because he was trying his best, because all the bikes go out with first aid kits and mechanical kits and tool kits and everything. So we try and make sure the drivers are, are they can equipped, yeah. equipped to, to deal with pretty much everything. And usually in a situation like that, the first time he, he breaks down, he would have called me and we would have worked out how long it would take to get a replacement bike. Usually it's around, the maximum time is probably about an hour. But it, that had gone by and now it's late and it would be t silly of me to send a replacement bike out. We'd only got there after dark out to Scarborough from here. Yeah. So I popped him in an Uber, or everybody, I said just dump the bike and in an Uber and take, tell the Uber to go the route that you would have taken. And they got back and I sent letters to them or emails saying, look, we're terribly sorry. Um, and we just, is there anything that you think we could, you know, we should have done better. So this guy, French folk, they were a little upset, you know. Yeah, maybe this, they paid a lot of money and, 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 and we didn't see this and we want compensation, cash compensation. Mm. And I sort of, you know, if we had completely cocked up and and, it, and we had, you know, there was this, there was an obvious, uh, either uh, something that we had not delivered on, but um, or any maliciousness or, or dishonesty or whatever it is, I, I'd be the first one to say, hey, look, here's all your loot and here's a bottle of champagne and here's a freebie ride for somebody else. Type of, you know, over overcompensating it. That's my policy. But I... I sort of went back to them and I said, you know, I, I hear you and I know you didn't get full value. We really did our best. Driver tore his hair out. We sort of, you know, cost me 600 bucks on an Uber to bring them through that route and do all the necessary. And I, I said, even having said all this, I know you did it, but you, it wasn't perfect. And here's a voucher for... I know you're in France, but you may be coming back, or you may have a friend or a family member who can go and enjoy the trip on us, complimentary. And um, there were a couple of niggles after that, because I don't know, I think they were expecting a bit of money from me. But I, I said, look, I, you would have, if, 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 for instance, you know, uh, the wheel came off and you hurt yourselves, and, and it was just completely and utterly unacceptable yeah. what happened. You know? So anyway, I think we sort of managed to keep them quiet and... Oh, I mean, look, I suppose you can't keep everyone happy all of the time. I mean, you've got to do your best. And like you say, I mean, first of all, you're running a business, yes. I mean, you, you tell them up front, you know, what it's about. They know what it's about when they go out there. So, but, uh, so most of your customers, are they international customers? Or have you got, you know, have you got regular um, international yeah. customers? Have you got regular South African customers? Look, we've got... Um, yeah. About 60%, I reckon, is overseas. Okay. Quite a high percentage. Mm. Um, and these are guests that are both corporate and private. Um, family groups traveling. Uh, and then the corporate would be these big incentive groups come down. 100, 200, 300,000 people come down. And they, you know, these companies, these big companies sort of sponsor them on a little junket down here and they have a little conference. And then one of the days they all go off in the sidecars to have some fun. So about 60, about two thirds of our business, I'd say, is overseas. The balance is local. 
and we're desperately trying to increase or change that 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 split because you know um, the local folk are always around when the shit hits the fan type of thing you know mm. and um, I think pricing is an issue with the local folk because we are seen as a premium product as a as a top draw and a South African can't get his mind around the fact that. To jump on a sidecar and go for two hours for the two of them is 2,000 Rand. They will take that value and apply it to a month's worth of shopping at pick and pay type of thing. You yes. know? Um, so for them, 2,000 is, is a big ticket item. Um, and, you know, 2,000, I can go and get myself a fancy cell phone or whatever it is, you know. Now, 2,000 is, uh, for a European, is, is what, 150 euro or something like mm. that, or 180 euro. Um, so they sort of see huge value there. As a matter of fact, there's, um, there's a company that has started this sidecar touring thing in, in Holland. I've got a couple of bikes. don't know what style they are. But, I mean, I, I had a look on their website, oh, on their Viator site, TripAdvisor site, a couple of weeks ago. And, I mean, they charge something like 300 euro or 400. I mean, crazy. Wow. Um, <clears throat> for about, you know, similar to ours, and also they don't have the old bangers and the, that sort of adventure and stuff that we offer, and jackets and paraphernalia and bandanas. So I think we're affordable for the, the overseas guys. Local folk of that one third local, probably the bulk would be corporate guys who they look at one number and they say, right, we had some guys who took all his staff out last week. And uh, it was himself and about 15 or 16 staff or something. So he wanted seven or eight bikes and it cost him 10 grand or 12 grand or whatever it was. Um, and for him, it's, it's sort of easy, you know, 10 grand because he sort of knew that that was value and we threw in champers and stuff and the staff had a wonderful time for that 10 grand. And it was part of a, a big treat that he was giving to the staff. He had them all at Radisson Red. Now, a room at Radisson Red is two grand a night or three grand a night per person or per room or whatever. So I think he sort of, for us, we weren't as big a ticket as mom, dad, and junior coming down and wanting a ride for the afternoon. Sure, yeah. You know, dad has to cough up that two grand. And dad would rather jump on one of these red buses here, you know, yeah. for the hundred and what, I think they've got family tickets here for 300 bucks or something. And then they've, they can go out for the day. You know, they can go to the penguins, not the, the world of birds, and, and get some good value, you know, keep Junior happy. So, um, yeah, so that's the split. Um, and repeats, repeats uh, customers? I mean, well, you see, um, we do. We, we get some delightful repeats. I mean, I, I just, it's just a real warm feeling to when I get a call or an email. WhatsApp or an email. Yes, Tim, we were here five years ago and I bought Granny and Granny hasn't stopped talking about it. Now we're bringing so and so and so and so. We want to buy the bikes. Okay, buy everybody another round on the bikes and can we do this, that, the next thing, but do another little route or whatever. And so we get, I get carried away. I just love that sort of thing. But when you look at repeats with our business, uh, the repeats aren't necessarily the, the, the bum in the seat. The repeats are the, are the agents in these various countries around here that constantly book us because they know that we've, we're, we're good value down here. So we, uh, most of our business is done through what we call these DMC companies, destination marketing uh, uh, companies, tour operators, tour agents. These guys are in the business. And they are 
big enough to have established themselves overseas uh, in various, you know, New York and Europe and London, these guys. So what will happen is that, um, and incentive companies as well. Um, so let's say, for instance, you have a IBM are having a big conference down here for all their IT guys. So there's 300 people coming down, and IBM, every three years, they do this at some, in some country around the world, and they send out bids, and they ask their tour agents to figure out, you know, where should we go next? And Cape Town wins the bid type of thing, you know? Yeah. And included in that little project is a little ride on the sidecar. So we sort of, we hang on to the coattails of all these big, uh, you know, the Sun Hotel Group or the Soho Suns, and we're just simply, uh, I wouldn't say bottom feeders, but we like the, you know, we yeah. just, because, you know, if they, for instance, any holiday maker, you know, you analyze their spend, and, and the most of it's getting there, you know, your travel. Secondly, it's accommodation. If there's anything left, then it's it's the activity for the day. Yeah. If there's nothing left, it's an ice cream or a toffee apple, and it's sitting on the beach there for the afternoon, you know, for the day. So if there is something left, it's a sidecar or a shark cage dive or, or, or uh, you know, going up Table Mountain or whatever it is. Yeah. So yeah, that's Robin, Robin Island. <laughs> Robin Island, but then again, oh, that's the other thing we I've love. I've never about. been able to go to Robin Island because every time I want to go, the boat's broken. Boat's broken, <laughs> or the well, you see, this is the sort of we we score on. One of the nice things about this particular product is our thresholds of weather-related stoppages is a lot higher than anybody else. So we'll get this flurry of calls on a on an afternoon saying crumbs the the raining tomorrow the weather or the wind or the swell or whatever they've cancelled robin island they the, the cableway is not working because of the wind the swells too much and there's no shark cage diving so all of a sudden we get all these guys who have now what to do they're going to sit in their bloody hotel room so we can put them on our bikes and we can go out we don't rain we sort of say look you know We've got ponchos, this, that, the next thing. As far as we're concerned, it's not dangerous. We do sometimes say, look, sorry, it's just pissing down. We're going to kill ourselves. But um, <laughs> so uh, wind, not a problem, you know. So everybody's closed because of the wind. Bikes go out, you know, manage to sort of do the route where we try and keep the wind on our backs all the time. So um, that, that's one of the benefits of having something like this where we don't have too many sort of unscheduled stoppages because of weather-related stuff. Oh, that's great. But then again, um, it's outdoor, you know, so you do every now and then have um, issues with, uh, I think, rain. Rain's probably the only one that may, from time to time, affect us, you know. Mm. Um, so, in, uh, we heard the dogs barking earlier on. The I doggies. Believe, I believe your doggies yeah, uh, no, like no, to doggies. ride on the bikes. <laughs> Yeah, the doggies. Um, it's funny, uh, there wasn't ever any plan. Um, but about five years ago, um, I decided that we needed a dog. We needed a workshop dog, okay. a, a junkyard dog. <laughs> was his name? Leroy Brown, meaner than a junkyard dog. So I went down to Dog, the rescue place in Hartley, mm. got ourselves this, this little three-week-old, four-week-old puppy rescue puppy brought him into the workshops and he became our workshop dog he would you know he would come home full of grease so he'd come out with us to work and he'd go home after the 
workshops have workshops of clothes, and he would be full of grease and oil. This one, uh, but because he had been in and out, there was he was he became quite sociable because there was mm. people in and out. He became completely unafraid of noises or bangs or, or, or any sudden shops, the movements or noises. So he's developed this really chill type of attitude to everything, you know. Um, and when he turned two, and, and again, I was never thinking of him coming out on bikes, but when he turned two, um, he would quite fancy himself just sitting in the bikes when we were part of the workshop. And he was, so I thought I needed to somehow get him out. And I used to start bringing him out with tethered up and everything, make sure he didn't jump out. Yes. And one of the most vivid memories I, I have of this one here, Brody, was he had just started going out and he obviously this was he was King Brody now, this is what he wanted to do. And I had uh, what happened now? I'd dispatched a whole bunch of bikes and then I'd gone off somewhere to do something. And I got a call from the driver that I dispatched. I mean, I was in Seapoint. He was already down at the lighthouse in Mully Point. And he said, I've just looked in my rearview mirror and your bloody six-month-old, one-year-old puppy is barreling down the road after my bike. So I thought, oh, God, here we go. What had happened was that Brody had decided, enough, enough, I'm not in the depot today. I don't care who's going on a bike. I'm on a bike. And he eventually caught up with them and they stopped and I had to go and pick him up and everything and realized we better just clip his wings a little and make sure he can only go out on one bike, which is mine, and only when I said he could. But I mean, ever since then, I mean, he's had the odd, uh, he jumped out the one time after a squirrel and learned his lesson. Um, but other than that, he's fine. He, he's very, everybody says how clever I am out to train him, but I mean, he's mm. trained me. He just knows where to sit and, and he's quite the sort of, um, he's quite the actor with uh, all the girls and he'll okay. stand up there and he'll <laughs> snuggle into the I mean, on their shoulders and whatever so he's quite uh, he's quite the star and he wears his little bandana he had doggles which we, we have to reinvent them he keeps on chewing them up you know because he gets he does a lot of riding now so and of course yeah. there's unprotected lies I mean, I'm just terrified something's, something's going to happen you're ashamed so he's so he's the man, and he gets uh, he gets um, invited on rides. We say, look, if you get booked and you really want him, it's a handful of biltong. That's it. That's his okay. charge. Oh wow! That's so he cool. so it's great because we arrive there, and he's like, hey, where's his biltong? <laughs> <laughs> and now we've got Valentine, who joined us about a year ago, um, and she comes on the bikes now. She's quite also not too bad, but. Not as chilled as Brody. She's still got a bit of bit of ways to go, just to understand, uh, to not get too anxious, and also noises sort of affect mm, her slightly. Cool, yeah. So she's got to get used to all that, <clears throat> but it's fine. We've, we've uh, every now and then, if it's not busy, like tomorrow, no, not tomorrow, it's Christmas, Boxing Day. Yeah. We've got a little outing with some friends, and they're going off in three bikes, and we'll follow on the fourth bike, which is going to be me, my girlfriend. And the two dogs. So it's this yeah. whole little happy family. I mean, we look like a bunch of loopy, nitty animal lover types, but uh, yeah, it's, cool, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I must admit, I'd love to... I think my next dog needs to be a dog that I can take with me everywhere, on the back of the bike with me. Yeah. There are... Uh, yeah, look, I've seen... Every now and then you see these video clips come through on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, I did see one a few weeks ago where they 
guy's got his solo two-wheeler bike and he vroom vroom and he calls the dog. <laughs> dog jumps on the back of the saddle with him. And then yeah. puts, puts this sort of, I don't know how he managed to do it. But what I've seen are a lot of these little lapdog Yorkie types that mm. guys put in their saddlebags. There's a guy on a Harley, I think, goes out. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Either on the saddlebag or he's got a little sort of, he's, he's fashioned a little cradle on top of his tank. Yeah. And the dog parks off there. Okay, you know? wow. But the Yorkie, you know, he's like little nose sticks out yeah. the top of the saddlebag. So it's a <laughs> lot of fun. Um, That's too much Paris Hilton for me. Yeah. No Yorkie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I'm not a Yorkie type. Uh, but maybe, um, uh, but if you wanted a dog this size, it's pr- pretty much a sidecar is about the only yeah, it's the avenue only, like, you can follow. Yeah, it's realistic way, yeah. Um, no, that's interesting. Yeah. It's funny, there's, there's a, you know, when you're in the business and you're always Googling sidecars, dogs, whatever, to see what's out there. And um, there's quite a huge following, not a huge, a biggish following of, of the whole doggy sidecar type of sort of, animal lover type of thing, you know. Um, matter of fact, I just sent something through this morning. Somebody, I'm on a, I'm on a group Facebook page called Chang Jang Owners Group, all out of the world, and somebody came through this morning saying, two dogs, what to do? And I sent them a picture of my double bucket where we've got both dogs in there. You know? Yeah. So, um, no, that's fun. Um, and I think with the business, you know, tourism... It's a sort of, not a fickle business, but it's a business that has, that has a life cycle, you know. Mm. Uh, and I mean, thankfully, Cape Town, there, there still seems to be lots of legs left in Cape Town because we still seem to be voted as the top destination in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But people within the tourism industry globally, you know, you may have a really good product, but unless you keep on sort of evolving and, and, and creating or adding value, you eventually sort of uh, your 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 value is not as wonderful and as unique as it was maybe when you started the product. Or alternatively, you've got half a dozen competitors now. Competitors now, and now what to do? Fortunately, yeah. with this type of business, uh, competition hasn't been there simply because it's nowadays it'd be quite difficult and quite expensive to start up something. That yeah, I had, the barrier know. to entry is a lot higher. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, for instance, to, to start this, I don't know, you know, each bike, I would, I've, for insurance purposes, I put a value of, I don't know, say 150K on a bike, mm. which is probably, so just, just the bikes alone are worth, let's say, five mil. Um, and then you've got all the, and then the backup and the paraphernalia, everything that goes with that. Um, and then the, the jackets, I mean, these jackets alone that I've been collecting over the years, you know, these good, lovely, beautiful you know, genuine old leather jackets are worth thousands of rands, you know. Um, so, uh, entry-level difficult. Some people have tried, like there's a guy down in Hermanus now. He's a tour operator. He came and he said, oh, I'm going to start in Hermanus. I said, well, if you need any help, I'll, you know. But he's got a couple of buddies that own 1200 GXs and they've oh, cobbled right. together, you know, modern type sidecars. Yeah. It's going to be difficult for him to get going because um, I realized when I started this business and I started with half a dozen, it was really, really difficult because I was always considered as one of these sort of, uh, he has some of these, he runs a little club for sidecars, you know, and, and he's, every now and then he'll take some folk out for rides. You don't have that same credibility 
as when you've got a fleet and you've got a bigger presence, you know. Mm. And it was only five years ago, I suppose, that the big, uh, uh, the, the big guys, the big operators, and uh, and the influence chaps in the, in the tourism industry were recognizing us as someone that can that we've we are sustainable. We've proved our worth. We do add value. We're not just some fly by night. Sure. Little, yeah. little, little sort of um, tin pot place, you know. Um, so that's sort of it's, it. Seems to have worked. We, yeah. you know, we um, over the years we started off in Seapoint, and then we sort of got too big, and then all of a sudden they, well, I got noticed to pull out because the building was coming down, <clears throat> and I thought, oh, what a move! This is terrible. But then realized we were just we had we were full up. We had just not enough space. So we found this property about a year and a half ago and just love it. Everything about it is perfect. The layout, the flow, driveways, the, the, the area outside oh, the where we test I mean, you know, yeah, accessibility. You, you off the highway. You know. And then we were given notice. They, they're China. pulling the building down. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so the building's coming down in four or five months' time, but I think I may have found something just a block down the road, which is, again ticked most of the boxes for us it's mm. it's, uh, it's big it's spacious accessibility is good um, noise wise we're not pissing off anybody Seapoint we used to have issues there because we did, you know a, a ride down to Betty's Bay we'd have to get up at 5, 6 in the morning get the bikes out warm them up prep them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some unhappy <laughs> people the police arrive <laughs> so yeah so ugh, it's one of those things yeah and then, um, yeah, I mean, the future for us, uh, as I say, we keep evolving this, not necessarily evolving, but we keep on keeping our ears to the ground to see which way the market's going. Um, we're looking at, we know that there's a huge growth of, still a huge growth of visitors to Cape Town, and we, there's new areas, new markets that are coming in. The Brazilian, South Americans, uh, these are, countries that are sending uh, um, guests down, these guys are arriving because we obviously good value for money for these guys. And slowly they're finding out about the bikes, so that's new. Traditionally, Europeans were the biggest market for us. Australians are pulling in, and I do a lot of marketing on these road shows where I go out with the South African tourism, tourism to places like India and Vietnam and, and the Far East to try and get business uh, or get some interest going and, and, and sure. also saying to all these guys that are, have been in the market forever and ever, hey, it's not as if you're going to reinvent something. Take our product and just add it onto your portfolio so you can be seen to adding value. We, that's my sort of big phrase here is add value to whatever you've, you've got. Don't reinvent something. Just take us. There we go. Look at that. All of a sudden, your guys are thinking, wow, look at them. They're so clever now. They've got these beautiful old vintage sidecars. So mm. much more fun for a little more money, and there we go. But now we've also realized, who knows, maybe this, maybe Cape Town doesn't become the flavor of the month in a few years' time. Um, maybe it becomes Bangkok or goodness knows what, you know. So we introduced Overland self-drive guided tours this season. Okay. So that's this, this brochure that you've got here. Okay. Um, the idea being is you got a license, you got some time, you want to do an overland, we'll 
plan it for you. We'll put the itinerary together for you. We'll supply you the bikes, guide, backup support, and then you do it. You can do your three-day, five-day, seven-day, 11-day tour all the way up to Port Elizabeth if you want. Garden route, Route 62, West Coast, wherever. Just cobble everything together. So the reason or the thinking behind this was the fact that even in a downturn, you've, we still even haven't even tapped into the biker's market. I mean, we may have bikes, but the sidecar and the way we're running our business, not necessarily a biking sort of activity because mm. we're chauffeur-driven. We do often yeah. get people calling, yeah, I want to drive my own bike and go around the peninsula, which we don't really like because um, we've got to get them in the day before, give them orientation, get the insurance sorted out. They've got to pay deposits. We've got to send a guide with them. So it becomes quite cumbersome and expensive. We get sure. the odd guy that still goes for it anyway. But with a multi-day outing like what we've proposed, uh, we've got the time. The guy come in, we do the whole package. You fly and pick up the airport, ho- um, put you in the hotel, following morning, pick you up, orientation, do the Cape Peninsula, get your you know, your, uh, your eye in terms of riding the bike. Then we're off down the, uh, to Garden Route, Neisner, Route 62, Ronnie's Shake Shop, mm. wine tasting, back five, six days later, hotel overnight, down Long Street for a piss-up, on the plane the next day, boom, and there we go, you know. Nice. So that's sort of what we're doing, and that that happens with uh, companies like Carew Biking, uh, BMW Motor Ride. They got these guys coming and spending a lot of money grabbing their their twelve hundreds. Yes. And then they off they go, and yeah. then off they go. Yeah, with yeah. with a guide or a support, you know. Yeah. So and those are the bikers. So we're saying, like we fit in between yeah. there. So the bikers are a more resilient sort of traveler than your guys who pull in on a cruise liner here or fly in for a jolly in Cape Town. They, in their minds, they want to come and do a cruise around the Himalayas or India or South Africa or South America or whatever because they, they're, a, they're a different band of, or a different culture of traveler. And we thought, let's tap into that because they will, they will keep coming, you know. Um, I mean, some of these guys who drive through Africa, they're loopy, you know, going through Bloody minefields and <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but we've got to market it correctly. So what we're doing is we market it to the biker who has been really, really wants to come and do a biking outing. But the missus has said, "Listen, time to grow up now. You've got three kids and me and everything." And then he can say to the missus, "Hey, tell you what, let's go down to Cape Town, speak to these Cape Sidecar guys, and let's get two sidecars or mm. three sidecars or something." I'll drive my own with the kids. You can get a guide on your bike. He can drive you around, and we go off as a family. So I'll get my kick out of the whole biking thing. I may not be able to go 300 miles an hour, but I'll get the whole biking kick. You guys are with me. Fun, and we can slot into whatever budget you guys can afford, whether it be a three, four, five-star thing, and have a jolly. And, I mean, what better than cruising around in an old 50-year-old banger, you know? So that's sort of happening. It's taking a while to pick up because we're just so busy with our this, day, our yeah, day tours. Season, yeah. and, um, but that's great. I, I like that. Even me as a biker who's got my own bike mm. and quite easily can just climb on my bike and go around the country yeah. whenever I want. Um, even that appeals to me as, you know, taking a check with, putting it in the sidecar yeah, you know, and doing, <coughs> you know, just doing like the garden route, yeah. like you say. R62. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I, 
Can you just imagine riding through Baringsport? Yeah. On no, that and, thing? And, and wonderful. And the nice thing is you sort of... Um, we we say to the, the the guys we've done a couple of rides so far. We, the one big one, we how we launched it, we went all the way from here to Durban uh, on a bunch of bike support. Mm. We got as far as we got as far as Port Alfred, and then we said, "No, bugger this, we're running out of time." And then we trailered the bikes the rest of the way through the wild coast. But um, the um, the nice thing is you've you got your bike. We've now designed trailers that the bikes can carry, so you can. If you really want to rough it, you put your tent, your whatever in the back, and then you can go for your jolly, you know. So it'll and some, you know, like for instance, these bikes now are four seaters. I mean, you, mommy, and two kids type of thing with the mm. trailer behind you. Um, 120, 150 k's in a day. Uh, all right, it's going to take you a lot longer. You know, your first, like for instance, our first days from here to Hamanas, for instance, uh, and. You know, somebody may just do Hermanus for the morning and come back type of thing. Some of these 1200s and these Karoo biking guys, they'll do three, 400 Ks. They will, I never forget meeting somebody in Neisner, a bunch of bikers. They were ready to leave the following morning from Neisner and they were going to Kharip Dam that the following day. Now, Kharip, 600 Ks mm. from, from, they were going to go up the N7 or whatever it was um, through Grafrenet. I mean, I suppose it appeals to you, actually. Right? But I mean, that whole it must that, that that route must have just been this whizzing past. I yeah. mean, they must have been clocking <clears> an <throat> average of 150 to 200. Yeah, you know, just um, well, no. but that's a lesson that I learned is that you know when you plan a trip and you say, okay, I'm going from here to there. Okay, I'm going to take three days. I'm going to stay here on that night and there on that night. Like the first part of the day, you stop and take photos mm -hmm. and everything and you check it out and then you realize, oh flip, it's after one and I've still got 250, 300Ks yeah. to go. And then that, you know, like, and then you miss out on all these yeah. things, you know, you like almost need to be going nowhere slowly. Yeah. And I think sometimes um, this would force you to well, take it, it easy. Exactly. You know? um, yeah. this, this trip we did, um, <clears throat> we actually went up every year, uh, South African tourism run this um, tourism in Daba, in Durban. I don't know if you know of it, in that ICC in Durban. And to launch this overland product, we, as I mentioned to you, we, we sent three bikes, three or four bikes, with backup. And we, uh, that's why we had to start trailering from Port Alfred, because we said, right, it's going to be one week and we're going to make it. But the thing is, I was leading it. <laughs> and I, you know, it, I was bes beside myself being happily driving along and anything that caught your fancy, hey, you know what? I've never been here before. I've always wanted to stop. Let's mm, stop. Stop, yeah. And so by, you're quite right. So by time lunchtime comes, hey, let's eat here. You know, I didn't know. We, I know we're going to get to what a, what a, what a, but let's have a bite here sort of thing, you know? And invariably what would happen, we would, we would reach some really cool pub. And then of course you can't drive anymore. You've been drinking, right? That's it pitch tents or find a hotel and yeah. that's the end of the day. Yeah. So it became this wonderful sort of like, geez, what's next day? Eh? Okay, who cares? Let's, mm -hmm. uh, or, I mean, the one diversion we did, which we sort of half regretted, but something you have to do was we were going along Route 62, hey, Route 62? Yeah. Through Uniondale. Uh, and then there's two ways to get from Uniondale down to Nice now. Um, 
But there's this, what was that pass you called? Marinsburg. Is it Marins? I don't think it's Marinsburg. Yeah, that's tourist. Yeah, no, not tourist. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That, and it was gravel. Oh, mm. man. It was beautiful <laughs> gravel. But of course, we were stuffing around. We spent too much time at lunch. We hit this pass. Uh, matter of fact, it's famous because they had a pub right in the middle of the pass called Angie's, Angie's G-Spot, which has been closed down now. Don't know. You may, you may no, have known. I've heard of that. Yeah, Angie's yeah. G-Spot. <laughs> Of course, we spent too long at Angie's G-Spot because it was the coolest. We actually should have stopped, but we had already promised to, to do little educational rides for somebody in Nice on the following day. So we had to carry on. And now it's nighttime with these things. You know, the lights like, yeah. flicker like a little candle. You know, you're driving <laughs> as past you long way and there's dongs and wrong turnings. And oh, God. So anyway, um, we got into Nice at 9 o'clock that night. Uh, but I think quite thankful we had done it. What the pity was that a lot of it was done in dark, so we didn't have nice photos. But who cares? But um, as you say, it's um, it, uh, it wouldn't be too difficult if you're a biker and your missus knows that you're a biker, but she doesn't necessarily right. like to come on the bike. Yeah. Then you can say, I "Tell you what, here's a sidecar. You're safe. You're sitting in there. Everything's cool. You can." play with your cell phone, you can listen to music, you can, whatever it is, everything's in the back, the boot, and it becomes a little more acceptable for folk yeah, who sure. may be a little resistant to biking, you know? Mm. Yeah, because I mean, the guy still gets his kick out of riding the bike, and, and then the missus gets to, yeah. and then together you tour the country, I mean, I, I really think And I mean, the cool. kids, I mean, if you've got kids, kids love it, um, mm. you know, I mean, the kids, that's actually, just to get back to our convention <laughs> Uh, we find uh, we, there's no age restriction. That's the first question he's asked. So I say, eh, I've got a toddler. I've got a six-month-old. Eh, bring him down. I don't know if you saw. They've got these dinky little little leather jackets. Oh, wow. Tiny little. I'll show you now. Yeah. Uh, so we get them all in. Actually, this company outing we did a few days ago, they had a little six-month-old, nine-month-old, and he can really build it. SpongeBob pants, helmet, and visor, and helmet, and, and jackets, and bandanas. Uh, but so there's no age restriction. If the parent or the adult is happy to take them, sign an indemnity, we're good. And then also your um, maximum age. I mean, uh, I mean, the old folk love this sort of thing because they can identify. I mean, they all had one, or they all had an uncle who had one when they were youngsters. Yeah. Right? I mean, we still tell a story of we somebody wanted to take their 93 year old granny or whatever it is out for a run. <laughs> Picked them down up in Constantia or Tokai. Put old Gran in the sidecar. Brody! Ran around. Drive, drive, drive. Gran, total silence. That's right. Gran hanging on white knuckles and all. Got back. Okay, that's it. How did it go? She said, no, I'm not jumping out. I want to go again. I'm not getting out of here. We said, uh. So they actually ended up with her having a fight with her son because the son says, all right, come, mum. We've got a Get out. No, I'm looking. I, uh, <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So he eventually grabbed and dragged her out, kicking and screaming. But it's it does. It appeals to... To all ages. To yeah. all ages. And, and, and one of the biggest appeals, which I think we spoke about it earlier, was the fact that people love being acknowledged. Um, and when you drive on these bikes, there's smiles and there's hoots and there's waves. And hmm. people generally love to sort of be the center of attraction, even if it's for a split second. Type yeah, thing, that's you know. it. Yeah. That's what they, uh, that's where we sort of want to 
create those memories. You know? mm. So we want to put them into these lovely old retro jackets and, and, and goggles and photos. And, you know, we forever trying to think of ideas where we could really make it as authentic and as memorable as possible, you know. So anyway. Tim, it's been awesome chatting. In, in ending, I mean, what other bikes do you ride? Or you just only... No, well, funny enough, I'm not really a biker. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, um, no, it's funny because uh, I um, the only time I've ever really had a bike as my mode of transport permanently is when I lived in the Far East, where in Taiwan everybody's got a scooter. So I had scooters all, you know, I used to travel around the country because I had different pubs and restaurants all over the place. And I used to arrive on an airplane at an airport and my bike would be parked in the parking lot somewhere, you know, gathering dust and I'd sort of they have a key and drive it around and that was and those are their little runarounds and the 150s and stuff mm. but I've never really never uh, I've driven a, I haven't really got the interest or the enthusiasm to drive a solo um, I do I mean I drive them if I have to but I uh, biking I think the South Car folk are we're well on the fringes of this whole biking community mm. We sort of think ourselves as a little, yeah, we're a little detached, a little more, a little more, what's the word? I suppose a little more um, uh, laid back, chilled and and traditional than your daddy turbo biker, push the buttons, go to a million miles an hour type of bike. Yeah. Know, so. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's cool. Thanks, yep. Tim. And that brought us to the end of our conversation. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Tim is a great guy. I recommend the next time you're down in Cape Town that you pop around to his place and book that tour around the peninsula. And that, my friends, is the end. I'll catch you next time.